Welcome to the Optimist Futures Podcast, a place to learn from an industry insider with over 20 years of experience in commodity futures and options. Gain insight to the newest technology, platforms, risk management, trading philosophy, and advice about the current state of the futures and options markets. For futures trading platforms, deep discounts trading commissions, overnight margins, and instructional videos, feel free to visit our website at optimistfutures.com. Please remember that this matter should be viewed as a solicitation to trade. Trading futures and options involves substantial risk of loss and is not suitable for all investors. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. You should therefore carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your financial condition. Optimist Futures LLC is not affiliated with, nor does it endorse any trading system, methodologies, newsletter, or similar service. We urge you to conduct your own due diligence. Now, here's your host, founder and CEO of Optimist Futures, Matt Zimberg. Hey guys, this is uh, Matt from uh, Optimist Futures. I got Esam Gafar with me here today, and he's a commodity trading advisor. And he runs, um, along with his partner, Roger, um, AG Capital. The reason that I brought them here is because they have a really different approach to trading. They look at trends, long-term trends, macro trends, which is very, very different than what most traders do today, which is focus on uh, day trading. So I find it very fascinating. They're more traditional that way. But the interesting part is that, you know, how they implement the risk management. And this is where I want you guys to listen and pay attention to how they have a strategy, how they implement it, how they uh, go about uh, devising a long-term plan for their trading. And I think whether you're trading short-term, swing trade or long-term, I think it's important to have the perspective of everybody in the industry. And there still are a lot of traders that do think long-term and are trend followers. So awesome. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, I really appreciate your time and being here. Matt, thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Um, okay, let's get started. So tell me, how did you and Roger uh, get you started in the global macro and futures industry? That's a great question. Um, and it's very interesting when you think about it. We both come from very different backgrounds. Um, I'll start with Roger, actually. Uh, so Roger comes from what I would call more of the pure play financial services background. You know, back in the late 1990s, uh, he was working at a blue chip macro CTA uh, called Caxton. And uh, he had an interesting job. He was working on the overnight dollar yen desk. And what that entails is basically getting to the office late in the, in the evening and staying until 4 a.m. And we're looking at the Japanese yen and how it trades against the dollar. And for those who don't know, the Japanese yen tends to be one of the more volatile currencies. It can make some very, very big moves. Roger, at a young age, was working on a team late at night, analyzing the yen and putting on trades and making sure that the portfolio was properly hedged and, and making money from different movements in the yen. So he started doing that, and then he moved into um, more of a, a prop trading and wealth management background. Uh, and that was sort of his career in the markets, uh, trading S&P futures and trading other futures. I, on the other hand, come from more of a consulting background. My, my history is more academic in a way. I studied economics undergrad in college. I worked at some different consulting firms, uh, looking at industry data, economic data, doing advisory services for very large endowments and foundations, helping them with their asset allocation, helping them think about how to put their portfolios together, how to hedge against different risks. 
Uh, and you know, the entire time that I was doing that, I was very interested in the markets. I would go home on nights and weekends and basically trade uh, futures markets uh, starting back in 2002 and was just, it was consuming my life. I was spending all of my time analyzing the markets and knew that eventually you know, that was the direction I wanted to go. Uh, so you know, Roger and I, who've been friends for a long time, we decided to set this up as a business together. And I think, I think that we work very well together because we have that complementary and different background. Definitely sounds like it. I really like uh, when people have, when people in the marketplace, they come from different backgrounds and they complement one another. So definitely you have a long-term view. He dealt with the risk management from day one. And I see why you're making such a, a good team together. Um, I have, on that note, I have, um, you know, a question for you that I was curious about. You know, most traders today, they seem to be moving towards a systematic approach, quantitative approach, um, you know, HFT trading. And you, on the other hand, and you guys have a very good track record, you decided to follow a discretionary and a fundamental strategy. Can you tell me why you chose that over more, and I, I would say it in quotes, more of the popular strategies today? A fascinating question. And you know what, Matt, I'm going to answer it in a bit of a controversial way. So I'll start going back in time and give a little bit of history to the listeners. So back in probably 2004, 2005, so well over a decade ago, I actually started off by trying to program some trend-following systems and some algorithmic systems, you call them. They weren't the high-frequency thing that is sort of the big popular thing today, but it was more of a, a multi-day to a multi-week, even multi-month um, quantitative systematic approach. In the process of doing that, you know, sitting there and coding things in Excel and coding things in, in different programming languages taught me that it wasn't something that was married to my own personal interest in the markets. So I wasn't enjoying the process of, of doing that. And it, and it was simply, in my mind, a way to make money. And the lesson there was that you can't just go into this business as a way to make money. It's a very difficult business and you have to have the way that you invest and trade be married to your own happiness and personal psychology when it comes to the market. So I didn't enjoy the, the quantitative and, and systematic um, sort of investing. And that's how I really started to then really put my own background of interest in economics and longer term movements together and went in that direction. And the irony is that even Roger started off with a little more of a short term swing trading background. And he sort of over time as well migrated towards looking at longer term fundamentals. I think when, I, when you think about the industry in general, um, you know, we tend to think that the markets themselves keep changing on a, a granular basis, whether it's the way they trade on a, a daily, a minute by minute, a second by second, or even you know, a longer wave basis. But when you think about very, very long-term reasons why soybeans might go from $4 to 11, or why um, you know, the dollar might go from 100 down to 70 on the dollar index, these things happen for, for real fundamental reasons that are driven by uh, moves that can take months, quarters, years. And I think that's fascinating. That for me is very interesting. It's very fascinating. And so we, we wanted to build a business that we actually were happy with, that we enjoyed coming to work every day to look at. And um, the money comes if you really love what you're doing. And the systematic approach was not the way we wanted to go. Although we do understand uh, that it's a very viable approach and we can understand um, that human beings want to find a quantitative way to analyze um, the markets, given that there's so much math that you can look at. Um, but it has to be, in my mind, married to your happiness and your personal psychology is the, is the bottom line. I 
couldn't agree with you more. Just to tell you th that, you know, my experience is that, you know, I what you mentioned, by the way, before I go into my experience, is very true. People still look first at the money, and then they try to find an approach to make money. I really like to hear what you said, that you, first of all, you like the approach, you work on the approach and money and generating capital or gains is a byproduct of your efforts and what you love to do in your research. And I think, you know, this is the right approach. This is what we tell, you know, optimist traders all the time. We tell them first, you know, realize your strength, what you like to do. If you like to microanalyze, you know, bar charts, then get into that business. If you like to look at long-term trends, then look at long-term trends. What others do really doesn't matter. So um, I like your approach and I definitely uh, commend you for, you know, going after what you love. Having said that, you know, you intrigued me in something that you said about research. So you mentioned in some of your materials that you're going back to uh, back in time to the 1980s and 1990s with your style of investing and trading. What does it mean exactly? What, what are you looking for in something that happened, well, relatively speaking, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago? Um, and how does it help you implement a, a strategy? You know, it's funny you mentioned that, Matt, because when we walk around, uh, whether it's at a conference or a phone call like this and try to introduce ourselves to the folks and give them a one sentence pitch on what AG Capital does, we often use that tagline, we're, we're a throwback in style, we're going back to the 1980s and the 1990s with our style. I think what I, would, what I would say to really elaborate on that would be to talk about what's happened today, especially in the past 10 to 15, even 20 years, call it. When you think about the hedge fund industry, whether, whether it's equity funds or CPAs, managed futures, the majority of the assets, the multi-billion dollar funds, which really contribute the majority of the assets in the industry, you, know, you have pension funds and endowments and these very large institutional investors that have allocated and they're writing checks for 100 million, 200 million, 500 million. And what they want in exchange is they want to minimize career risk. They don't want to have any risk at all. And what that means is you also give up your upside. So you're going to end up having these multi-billion dollar hedge funds and TPAs trading and trying to produce a 4% return with 3 or 4% volatility. Um, and so you essentially have that minimization of career risk that's driven the industry. And I understand that it makes sense from a business standpoint if you are running one of these large companies and it also makes sense from the allocators perspective if you are you know a, a massive pension fund uh, like a california retirement system etc but it, it gets away from what the hedge fund industry used to be like in the 1960s 70s and 80s where it came from it came from a need to deliver a strong return that was even potentially better than what the stock market could give you in a very differentiated profile and the initial hedge fund managers, whether they were CPAs or equity managers, they were taking on personal career risk when they put these trades on. They would concentrate the capital and give you a very, very different uh, return stream than what you would get by just buying bonds or stocks. And that's what we're trying to do with AG Capital. We are willing to go and say, listen, we're putting our own money in the strategy. We have our own net worth at stake, and we're willing to take the personal career risk to give a differentiated return stream to be different we know we'll have a drawdown at times. We know we're going to lose money at times, but we want to keep the money losses in, in control, keep the drawdowns in control, but really try to deliver a substantial return without being able to promise anything, of course, because nobody can do that. Uh, but at the very least, in the 80s and 90s, you had managers that would concentrate capital in their best ideas uh, and be very, very different than the big benchmarks. They were not going to hug 
the S&P 500 by just deviating a teeny bit. And they were willing to take that personal risk and, and deliver a, a substantially different return stream. I think that's what we're trying to do with that statement. Just to give you a little bit of feedback of what you said, I've seen this change myself. I would say, you know, most of my customers, um, you know, I've been a retail broker for 20 years and most of my customers um, have changed. They're the ones who invest in managed futures, who invest in money managers. I think what I saw and, you know, just from observation up until 2008, everybody wanted very high returns and they were willing to uh, accept big drawdowns. I've seen the risk tolerance from that point on kind of go down and they say, look, we just want a reasonable return with a reasonable drawdown. They don't look for those, you know, three digit numbers or high two digit numbers that maybe before people were throwing around. So I've seen the same change on the investment side, you know, reduction of risk and, you know, and willing to accept in the portfolio lower return and just have more steady flow. So since we were talking about your approach here, going back to the 80s and the 90s, tell me a little bit, how have you seen the markets change in the way that they trade or move over the past two decades in terms of volatility, direction? Where, where do you see the flow differently, the, the market flow differently today? Well, by far the, the biggest change that I've seen in the 20 years, the almost 20 years that I've been trading, and Roger can corroborate this, he's seen the same thing from his own personal experience, is that the very short-term moves, what I would call the, you know, the minute-to-minute or even the 30-minute, the multi-hour, and sometimes even the multi-day moves, you used to be able to sort of swing trade on a three-day time frame or day trade. And if you found that you had an edge as a trader and saw patterns or saw certain fundamental triggers that you could pull from, you could actually make a living. And I think you could, you could find a system or a way of approaching the markets on a short-term basis that was sustainable. And I'm not saying that people can't do it today. I think there are definitely managers who are able to do it today, but it's 10 times, maybe even 20 times or, or, or more than that harder than it was 15 to 20 years ago to do that. And it's part of the reason that we've gravitated towards much more of a long-term approach um, where we can be differentiated and where we know that the fundamentals combined with the technicals and the sentiment um, of, the, of the market can help us have an edge. Um, and it really, in the past, I'd say five to 10 years, there's been a radical change with more and more algorithmic trading, and especially with the rise of what I would call the PhD-driven um, quants, where you basically have 80, 90% plus of the volume in futures markets and equity markets being driven by just algorithms that are programmed off of millisecond timeframes it's really changed the nature of the way that moves happen. So you'll see stop losses where um, you know resistance areas and support areas get broken on charts on a short-term horizon in a way that didn't happen uh, back, say, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, so I think the fact that the volume is now being driven by computer trading and as opposed to a, a large pool of human beings making their own intuition and putting on their own trades based on their intuition, that change has distorted the real short-term timeframes. And I think it's become harder and harder and harder to get an edge at that short level, uh, in my opinion. I think you're 100% right. Just to give you further points, um, you know, to what you were discussing in the last, in the last uh, 12 months, we had back in February, one of the highest VIX volatility rises. We 
in December, we had one of the highest rises in the S&P market in terms of points. So every year there's something historical that happens in the market as I've done before. And those one day volatility or a week of volatility or a one month volatility could be very, very hazardous to a lot of traders who are not used to this kind of environment. So I definitely agree with you. The short term trading, all, all the algos are really distorting a lot of things. They correlate to one another. They're all tied up in one way or another. To tell you the truth, I don't know the complexity of all but I see how they're all tied up. For example, in February last year, we had one fund that went out of business and it just affected the whole market. So I definitely understand um, where you're coming from. Something that would be very, very interesting to our listeners is this. Take us through how you generate a trade idea and implement it. So I'm gonna do that by starting off by telling the listeners a little bit of a story and I think it'll help frame the rationale for why we do what we do. Uh, so this is interesting. I'll tell a quick story. Back in the um, the early to mid 2000s, uh, before I set up AG Capital, I was working at a large prestigious consulting firm, and uh, a lot of the, the time we would work with clients and they, we would invest their capital into leading hedge funds. Now I'm going to change the names. I'm not even going to name the name of this firm, but there was a discretionary ETA, effectively a managed futures strategy that had about $5 billion under management, blue chip name in the industry, and uh, they were prestigious track record and everything. So we had put some clients uh, with them, and they decided in probably the 2004-2005 timeframe that they wanted to go uh, short copper, uh, because copper had been doing very well, and they had done a lot of analysis that said they should be short. Now, why did they go short? Well, look, they had a team of five geologists that they were paying on retainer. They also would go out and do detailed Excel models and other regression analysis, looking at each individual copper mine all over the world, whether they were in Australia, in Chile, and they would do detailed supply demand forecasts for each particular mine and get their data. And the data showed that the copper price had just gone way too far um, and, was, and was really just overextended and, and shouldn't have been where it was, probably in the, the 2004 to 2005 timeframe. So they went short. Well, what happened if you fast forward about 18 months to two years later, copper doubled and almost tripled from that price where they went short. And in, in their uh, style of managing money, they didn't use stop losses. They were very large and they, did, they thought they did enough analysis to not do that. And it basically took down the business. They had to close the shop. So one of the things that we do, and this is why I told the story, is no matter how much homework we do, we always have a couple of reasons to be bullish on the market. And we have a couple of reasons to be bearish on the market. And that we do that for every single market, whether it's copper or soybeans. Um, and there are only two of us, so we're not sitting there and pretending that we're going to do mine-by-mine -mine analysis or get fractal data on soybean fields. That's not the point. What we think we can do is do our homework by reading research, um, looking at technical charts, and putting together those couple of reasons to be bullish and bearish every single market. And then based on our own intuition and reading of those fundamentals and our own history with these markets, we decide which side we want to be on of those markets. So let's take uh, that same copper trade. If we had decided we wanted to be bearish, we would pick that side to be on it. And then after that, we decide how much exposure to put on. Um, but the way we handle the fundamentals is, is not to do so much research that we become dogmatic, but rather to have both the bull and the bear case um, when we look at the charts. And we go through all of our 50 markets every single day, um, the charts. And we already have a thesis built up from having studied these 
research reports and our own research on these markets. Um, but whether it's equities or bonds or commodity markets, um, that's how we go about it. And then we winnow things down and narrow down the list of those 50 to say five markets were bullish on and five were bearish on. And ultimately, we build a portfolio that might have anywhere from, say, two to five actual trades in it on different time horizons um, based off looking at the chart and combining it with our own fundamental reading, um, knowing that if we're wrong, we can, we can take a small loss with a stop loss and not be dogmatic. Uh, so the key is to not be dogmatic and, and try to box yourself into one side on a permanent basis. I, uh, I agree with you. I always tell people, just look at the price. Doesn't matter what your belief system is. Always be open-minded to the idea that you could misinterpret even the best data out there. And there's data that you might miss. It's so comprehensive today. There's so much research coming out. You can't cover it all. So I agree with your approach. Risk management is everything. You generate the idea, you implement it. And if it doesn't go, you get out of it. Don't fall in love with it. The price tells you everything. Having said that, and also talking about the HFT environment that we're in and the algos, tell me some some of the other additional ch challenges that a money manager in the futures and commodities arena face today. Well, we've had a lot of changes in the industry. Um, it's obviously um, a tough thing to build a business over time. And, and one thing I think you have to do is look at it as a business. This is going to be a very simple example, but I think a lot of people get into um, the commodity markets, the futures markets, or even just, as I mentioned, the broader hedge fund business and think of it as a way to get rich quick, or they look at it as a, a money-making machine. When you, instead of doing that, you should think about it as uh, basically no different than setting up um, a coffee shop or you know, selling cupcakes, you, you, know, you name it, a small business that is going to take five to 10 to 15 years to really build over time. And I think that's the approach you have to have because it's difficult to raise money. It's a lot of effort, a lot of work. It's extremely difficult, probably more difficult than it ever was in the past to actually make money on a consistent basis because of how the markets have changed their nature and how uh, much more difficult it is to, to find those easy short-term trades as we talked about earlier in this conversation. I think you have to treat it as a passion. You should treat it as a business. And then you want to build really strong partnerships with your clients. Be very, very transparent with them about why you lose money when you're down equally transparent on what your themes are and when you're up and what, when you're making money um, and treat it as a business um, and build the business customer by customer with transparency, with honesty, um, year by year. And instead of thinking about this as a short term, um, you know, get rich quick scheme, think about it more as a 10, 20, 30 year affair where you're really slowly building something with a group of good partners, um, such as folks like yourself, a great group of customers who, who understand what your philosophy is that you've articulated. Um, and then build that partnership over time because it is a difficult business, more so than it ever was in the past. It, it definitely is. And just to, uh, again, just to add to your perspective, you and Roger come in from, you come from uh, an institutional background, an academic background, but many CTAs who entered this arena enter uh, because they either had their own accounts and then they handled friends and family accounts and then they become, you know, licensed CTAs. And one of the things that I always tell them that might affect their business despite their trading skills is the ability to trade money for other people. It's extremely difficult. It's challenging even if your customers are not challenging you directly. So if you're through a drawdown, um, you know, you have to know how to get out of it without being emotional. And for many people, that's the hard part. That's the part they don't consider. 
because they said they're alone, they traded their own money, they had a reasonable track record, and they said, oh, well, I can do this for a living, why won't I raise some money? But then they realize what comes with it, which is the emotional baggage of trading other people's money and the pressure of trading other people's money. And I tell them this is something that you really have to be conscious that you will go through difficult periods. You will have times that your customers will call you and you still have to stick with the strategy. My experience that the retail traders who became TTAs, it's extremely challenging for them. I can tell you this, and I would say that majority of them will not survive this pressure. But I'm happy that you guys come from a different background and, you, and it's probably reflected in the terms of the customers that you take on board. Having uh, said that, um, I wanted to ask you just a little bit, you know, kind of a general question that people always, uh, you know, ask. If somebody, let's say, has a traditional, you know, assets like stocks, stocks and bonds, you know, in their portfolio, where do you see the value of your specific program adding value to their overall portfolio? It's a great question. And I'll start off by saying that I'm not here to preach any kind of a doom and gloom scenario where you must invest in futures and you must get out of the stock market because uh, it's about to crash 50% like it did during the crisis back in 2008 or like it did during the dot-com bubble bursting in uh, the turn of the millennium in 2000, 2001. I don't think that's the right frame of mind. And not beyond that, I don't even think that's a scenario that's probably going to happen. Um, although who knows? I think a better way to handle it is to say, well, let's look at what you have if you have the stock market today. You've had a great 10-year run, and uh, the stock market, by all means, is is expensive. It's just a fact when you look at it on different measures, whether it's the capitalization, what we call the market cap as a ratio to, to GDP, the earnings uh, multiple, uh, you can look at that in different ways. Um, but the stock market is expensive. And if we assume that there's no crisis and it just has a, a a path forward over the next five to 10 years, maybe it's going to return 4% a year, maybe six, maybe seven, 8% in a very optimistic scenario, but it's not going to give you that 10 to 15% that it's given you in the past 10 years. And honestly, it's given you that fantastic return ever since say the early 1980s when we had the big boom that kicked off uh, when Reagan was president. But I think on a going forward basis, it's a much lower projected return uh, and that's probably not a return that uh, might be adequate for a lot of folks, um, or they could they could look to to do something better with that. And same thing with bonds. Bonds, I think, are in a little more of a risky situation than even stocks, where sure you get a dividend from high quality blue chip corporate bonds, um, and you have safety when it comes to the principal in nominal terms from government bonds. But we've had a 40-year bull market where interest rates have declined for 40 years, and bonds have done very very well. Um, and when you think about over the next, say, decade or even decades, the bond market will probably struggle and it'll be very difficult to make money there. The key to a program like ours is we think on that long-term horizon. We think on that five-year, 10-year horizon very often when we think about themes, but we're going to give you very different exposures. So you know, I'll give you a very simple example. When you look at uh, the financial system, oftentimes you have big moves in currencies like the dollar over a, a five to seven-year horizon where it can go from a very cheap level to an expensive level or vice versa. You can have big moves in commodity markets like oil when it went from $20 to, to $140 back in the earlier part of the 2000s. Large moves in precious metals, which often are the anchor of the, the monetary system. We're in a position to take advantage of, of those moves over multi-year timeframes. So it just gives you a very different set of exposures 
uh, different return streams to balance out the risk of, of what I would call low projected returns from a conventional portfolio of stocks and bonds. So quite often in the industry itself, I'll share it with you, you know, because again, coming from the retail side and I see the retail side's perspective when they're being sold on managed futures. So the industry typically sells managed futures as an asset class. And I tell all my customers, you have to look at the individual trader. So I treat every trader as its own entity and its own risk. And they, that's what they have to analyze. And I say, if you have risk capital that you've built as a result of your appreciation, you know, if you had gains in the stock market, look to build a portfolio with your risk capital, with talented traders. So for me, I always talk about, you know, managed futures in not in the broad, broad, sorry, perspective that most people talk to. I usually narrow down to the manager, the risk that he takes, directional risk, whether it's short volatility risk. And that's what I tell them to look at because I say, you know, you have to look at the one-off event that would happen that may affect this specific strategy. What I particularly like about your strategy with our customers that I've been following is really your diversification in markets. You have gold in one direction, crude oil in a different direction. You have a very, um, I would say, broad perspective on all the commodities. And that's where I see the value is really being in a, a number of commodities with, with diversification. And I see that you stay in them for a long time, or at least you attempt to stay in them as long as possible and and, and write and uh Right, uh, trends. That leads me to the next question. Obviously, your business is growing. So, uh, what the growth? Could you share with me what the growth path has been for the business as well, and uh, where do you see it going forward? Yeah, thanks, Matt. So, we've taken. You mentioned we have an institutional background, and I would agree with that. But we also have taken uh, the approach of really building this business from the ground up, and we've literally bootstrapped it with our own capital and with friends and family capital from day one. So what we did not do is we didn't come off of an investment bank's trading desk and start with 500 million and try to build that, um, you know, that strategy of delivering a, a 4% return with a 2% volatility on day one. We decided to build, as we mentioned earlier, a real return to the fundamentals of what a hedge fund and what a CTA and managed futures should give you. Um, so we built this business from the ground up and in 2014, we started off with a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, we built it every year and have gotten up to uh, a much larger scale now uh, and at around 15 million in, in the management. And I think what we want to do is scale this further and try to get the business to a point where um, it's far more solidified and sustainable and, and raise assets beyond that $100 million threshold. But I think it's equally important to talk about what we do not want to do. We do not want to end up as a multi-billion dollar fund that, that doesn't deliver on the promise of what invigorates us and makes us happy and I think what helps us fulfill the client's needs, which is to deliver the differentiated return, take the risk of, of the personal risk of being able to do that, knowing that you're going to lose money at times. I think we can do that for many years to come as we scale the business, add resources, um, but do so in a fashion that allows us to stay true to those roots and keep um, the fire burning it. We love to do. We want to be able to spend time analyzing the markets. We want to have fun doing it. We want to keep on giving people that different approach and, and not turn this into more of a, you know, a calcified, ossified type of uh, business. I think you're going to get there. I think you're a very conscious person. You know, the example you provided with the copper, it's something that's stuck in your mind. 
And you obviously remember that. And I remember those kind of things as well. And I share them with my customers. You know, I always tell them about the one, you know, because you have this experience, you have seen how one trade can literally wipe your capital. So I'm happy you actually shared it with us and you're very conscious of it. And I hope you will get to, you know, $100 million fast. Talking about, you know, those kind of uh, events that nobody wants to consider. Let's talk about risk management. Tell me, how do you handle that? Um, how do you use stops and how do you manage the volatility of the futures markets in general? Since we are talking about stop losses, I have to read this disclaimer. The placement of contingent orders by you or broker or trading advisor, such as stop loss or stop limit orders, will not necessarily limit your losses to the intended amounts, since market conditions may make it impossible to execute such orders. It's probably the most important question that you've asked, um, and it's the most important question for anybody in this business. And it goes back partly to what I said earlier, what I mentioned, we make a bull case and a bear case for every single market that we analyze. And we try to have two to three reasons to be bullish and two to three reasons to be bearish each market. The reason we do that, we didn't used to do that, by the way. Uh, so I'll tell another little story. It's, when you look back um, at our history, like anybody else, you, you want some handholding in the beginning because the markets are going all over the place. And when I was younger, when I was, I'm in my 40s now, but when I was back in my, in my 20s, first analyzing the markets, I would go on uh, the internet um, or even subscribe to publications, look at people who had been um, involved with the markets for a very long time, who were famous in some way, shape, or form. Maybe they had a newsletter, maybe they went on Bloomberg TV, or they were on CNBC. And I tried to look at their opinions to help me figure out which side of the euro I wanted to trade or which side of uh, you know, the soybean market or the stock market. I didn't feel confident doing it myself, and I figured they must know something because they've been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years, and they're very famous and they're wealthy. And nothing could be further from the truth. The one thing I've learned over doing this in the last two decades is nobody, and I mean absolutely nobody, knows where a market is going. Nobody knows. And that's why you have to have both the bull case and the bear case and be very willing as a trader to change your mind if the technicals and the fundamentals warrant it. And if you don't have both sides on the fundamentals, if you only have the bullish side in your mind frame, you're going to really be in trouble when you get propped out and don't know what's going on. You want to be able to, to say, listen, I was bullish. This market is trading totally differently. That's actually a very bearish signal and be able to flip and change your mind. Um, and then you also want to make sure you do your own homework and don't try to follow um, what uh, somebody's saying on TV because that's, that's a path to ruin in my mind. Um, so risk management is, comes from that as a philosophy. And then when you get more technical, you always have to have a stop loss, meaning you risk anywhere from, say, 10 basis points on the low side to maybe 150 basis points, which is 1.5% on the high side, depending upon your conviction. And if you're wrong, you take the trade off and you take the loss. Maybe you try it again a week later, you take another loss. Try it again two weeks later, and all of a sudden you get the position to work, uh, and you hold that, and that ends up not only covering the two losses, but it makes quite a bit of money. And that's the way you have to frame every single trade. Every trade has to have a stop, and every position has to be held with conviction, um, but with both sides of the argument clearly held in your mind. And you must follow your own light and not, not be led by others, is what I would say. Couldn't agree more. Um, I always uh, tell my traders that risk management is a strategy. And it's not just another side component to your strategy. Your, law, your stop losses where you decide to get out of the market 
it's as equally important as it is as the trade uh, generation itself. So when you generate a trade, it, I, I think sometimes the risk management is more important than the idea itself because ideas can come from multiple and multiple. If there's enough liquidity in the market, they can come from multiple ideas. And so obviously people take always different views on the market, but the way they handle the risk management will determine, in my opinion, their outcome. I really appreciate your time here. I appreciate your perspective. I appreciate everything that you shared with us. I ran out of questions. Is there uh, something that I didn't ask and I should ask before we wrap up? You really were thorough, Matt. The only thing I would say at the end of the day goes back to some of the things that even you were talking about with your business. And I'll just reiterate it. You have to love this. You have to do it because you love it and not do it for the money. Even though the business itself is all about trading and investing your own money, other people's money, and being a great custodian and fiduciary for that money. You have to love the actual markets, love the way they move, try to figure them out. You have to love waking up at two in the morning sometimes because something is nagging at you. And, and we do, you know, I, I, I go on a vacation, I'm reading for pleasure. I'm reading a, a book on trading or I'm, I'm looking at the market. I love it. And, uh, I think that's why even if the business stays small or whether it becomes large, whatever happens, happens. But this is what I want to do with my life. It's what Roger wants to do. And, and that's what we came together. And we're happy with that. I think that's the bottom line. And that's the way I look at life. And look at business. I definitely can appreciate that. And I, uh, I'm an avid reader myself. I always read. Um, I read a lot about, you know, multitude of subjects and everything else. But one thing that's interesting, you know, I've read a lot of books about that are not related to the markets. And, and sometimes I take ideas that people implement in their business and their success, and I bring it to the trading world and I share it with customers. And one of them is what you mentioned before, you know, it's, it's this risk management thing. I tell them, you know, there were a lot of companies who took care of the risk management. They love what they did, just like you did and the business grows. So I'm, I'm sure you will have a lot of success Awesome. I appreciate your time. Thank you very, very much. Um, I hope I'll have you here, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in a year or two, and you can tell us that your assets grew to 50 and 100 and 150 million dollars. I definitely wish you all the best in the world. I think you so far did a wonderful job with our customers. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the time that you always, when I have, when my, me and my staff have questions, you've been, uh, always, um, immediately available and i appreciate that so thank you again for your time thanks man it's been a pleasure and i uh, would love to be back on the air with you again in the future um, but thanks very much for having me on thank you thank you for listening to the optimist futures podcast subscribe to our podcast on itunes soundcloud and google play you can also find us on youtube facebook twitter and google plus all under the username optimist futures if you have any questions, feel free to send us an email to support at optimistfutures.com or give us a call directly at 561-367-8686 or toll free at 1-800-771-6748. Once again, thank you for listening to the Optimist Futures podcast. Please remember that this matter should be viewed as a solicitation to trade. Trading futures and options involves substantial risk of loss 
and is not suitable for all investors. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. You should therefore carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your financial condition. Optimus Futures LLC is not affiliated with, nor does it endorse any trading system, methodologies, newsletter, or similar service. We urge you to conduct your own due diligence.